I want to start off today with a quote from a, a wonderful philosopher, circa 1986, June 11th to be specific. He said this, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it, said Ferris Bueller. Bueller, anyone? Anyone? Okay. My wife has that entire movie memorized, and uh, when I started that line yesterday, she finished it without any script or any notes. She knew exactly what that was. But he's right, is he not? Life happens really, really fast. I was talking to some young parents in the back, reflecting on my... The last time I was in a delivery room was 14 years ago, and I remember like it was yesterday. It happens fast. Everything goes really, really fast in life. And if you don't intentionally slow it down, if you don't stop it at time to time, you miss it. We like to think that you'll just remember things and you'll just, I'll remember that, I'll remember that. Well, the reality is, is you'll forget. And it's sad. And I've forgotten more than I ever remembered. But it happens really, really fast. You've got to do some things intentionally to slow it down because life happens this way. And when you're in the middle of life happening to you really fast, when things are going quickly, you make a lot of decisions. You think you know, but you don't. In fact, you don't know until it's over with. Then you look back and you say, well, if I only knew then what I know now, I wouldn't do what I did then. But I only knew then but I don't know now. You follow the no's and the now's? You just don't remember and you didn't know, but you made the best decision based on what you had, but you didn't have enough, but you thought you did, and you just kind of learned to plow forward. And what you really learn is another proverb that comes up, and that is the proverb of hindsight is twenty twenty. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We think about the Gospels. They've got all the hindsight in the world. This group of people that you're going to read about in the Gospels, they thought they knew, but they didn't, and they missed it. They were going so fast, life was coming at them so quickly, they just missed it. And I don't blame them, and it's the greatest miss of all time, is that they missed Jesus right there in front of them. They just missed him. And you might have read the Gospels and looked at it and go, how did they miss that? How did they, how did they, how did they? The same way you do. Life is fast. Life is stressful. Life is fearful. You're not sure what's happening in front of you, and you just miss Jesus. And you know the rest of the story, at least more than they do did at the time. You know they didn't. They missed him. He was right there. But then again, you have all the stories of him, and we still miss him. We miss what happened. And I don't judge these dear souls in the New Testament at all, because I know if I was there, I would have missed it too. And so would have you. Think about what they saw. It's rather shocking. Dead people were rising from the dead. Blind people were suddenly seen, deaf were hearing, lame were walking, leaders were glaring, Rome was threatening, bread was coming out of nowhere. No one had seen that before. Fish were all of a sudden there in the nets. They weren't there just 20 minutes previous. Next thing you know, the boat is about to sink so full of fish. He calmed a raging sea. Demons went running into herds of pigs. And Jesus never seemed to be hurried or stressed, not one time. All these things are happening. If you can just imagine Witnessing some of that, seeing a little bit of that, hearing about it, and wondering what in the world is happening. Oh, and by the way, I have to hurry and go finish my crops because if I don't bring in this harvest, we're going to starve to death. That was their reality. And so they didn't have all the time. They didn't have commentators' books that were telling you exactly how this was going to unfold. They were living it real time. And they missed it. We would have missed it too. In fact, so much was happening that John, when he's writing his gospel, says this in John 21. And there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. This is how many things Jesus was doing. 
He was so busy and people were so hurried that they just missed him right there. And the majority of them missed it. Only a few caught it. Only a few. And really, you didn't really see a mass movement until after the resurrection. And then even then, Jesus had to open their eyes to all that he was doing in front of them. They missed it. And I get it. I can relate. Life moves at you really, really fast. And if you're not careful, if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it too. And so what we want to do for the next several weeks is we want to go through the Gospel of John with you. The Gospel of John has all these little, vin, uh, little stories, little moments that capture Jesus dealing one-on-one with people, has Jesus in certain events, has Jesus working in certain ways, that the other Gospels, they carry a lot of it, but not like this. Jesus is going to meet people who don't have the pedigree, the position, or the power to meet him like him. They're not influential. They're not rich. They're They're common. Some of them are poor. Some of them are rejected. Some of them are outcast. And Jesus meets them right where they are. He shows up right in the midst of their stress, and he encounters them in that moment. And I think we need to realize that Jesus has the same desire to meet you right where you're at. You don't have to just come to church to meet Christ. You don't have to have that. He doesn't just meet you in the middle of a quiet time or reading your Bible. He'll meet you anywhere. He'll meet you in all kinds of places. He'll show up in places you never thought possible. He will meet you in that moment. We see it happen in the Old Testament. We see it happen, I'm sorry, in in the New Testament, in these gospels. We see that Jesus meets him. And when he does, when he meets these people, he shows them who he is. He shows them not just who he is, but he shows his power. He gives them gifts. He shows them his agenda, and he has his people with him. I'll show you this in a minute. He never comes alone. Jesus always has got a group of people with him, and then everybody is forced to decide. Everybody has to make a choice. He gives them that choice after he gives them lots of information to make that choice intelligently. So I want to take you to the first chapter of John. We'll be in John. We'll walk through this over the next several weeks. We'll walk through several stories of this. And our hope is, again, that you'll rediscover what is happening. Our hope is that you'll rediscover that Jesus is willing to see you and meet you right where you're at, and you'll learn to develop an eye for him, and you'll be able to experience Christ regardless of where the Lord might have you that day. And so when you consider the Gospels, John seems to emphasize these encounters, which is why we are drawn to this. Uh, He meets them at a wedding. We'll talk about the wedding in Canaan next week. Uh, The woman at the well. We'll talk about the dinners that he had with sinners. We'll talk about the scholars and so much more that Jesus met where, where he met people in the Gospels. All give us these stories, but John seems to present them in a kind of unique fashion. One of the things you need to remember when you're reading the Gospels is that they're all after-action reports. Some of you might have to file these. Those of you who are in the military and in a leadership spot, you'd have to file, an event would take place, and then you'd have to explain the event. After it was all done, you'd have to, an after-action report. We do this on Mondays. We don't call it after-action reports. We sit down and say, okay, let's talk about yesterday. How did that go yesterday? What can we do a little bit different? Or what can we do better? What were our hits? What were our misses? How were things yesterday? And you might have that. In fact, you can look at our culture today. I'm wondering what the after-action report is tomorrow when the presidential administration gets together and talks about a big balloon. What are we going to talk about when we talk about a balloon going over our country? That's going to be an interesting after-action report. I want to know what the after-action report was like after the Cowboys lost two weeks ago. I know what everybody else thought. I heard all kinds of opinions about that after-action report, but I would like to know what the Jones brothers did after that, after that, what happened there. I love to talk about these after-action reports and what happened. And so when you read the Gospels, you need to know that they're writing it in hindsight. They're writing it after it's already happened. 
And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, who did all the research, and John are writing these events after it occurred. They know the end of the story. The people in the middle of the story that they're writing about, they don't know. It's happening live. They're writing a history of this. And that kind of changes your mindset. So when you look at the woman at the well, she has no idea who she's talking to. It's just some dude who wants water. Great. When you're looking at the wedding at Canaan, all of a sudden the disciples and Jesus show up. What? Who are these guys? The wedding couple has no idea who that is. Now, we'll talk about this next week, so I don't want to give that away. But we'll talk other events. They have no idea. When Jesus shows up at Lazarus' tomb, they don't know what he's going to do. All they know is he's late. He's not there on time because if Jesus was there, he wouldn't have died. Hint, hint, Jesus, you're late. They don't know. And so you need to read the gospels that way. They don't know who they're dealing with like you do. You know more than they do. And so when you read the gospels, allow that to kind of make it pop a little bit different for you. Nobody else in the story knows what you know. So you're reading it with hindsight and the advantage of hindsight. So look at John chapter one, verses one through 14. We're not gonna read all of this. I'm gonna kind of highlight it a little bit this morning, but I'm gonna break down a few things, of course. But look at verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is called a theological prologue. He's writing in advance. He's giving you something that the, the rest of the readers aren't going to know any of this. And so it's, it's a Christological statement. He's breaking this down in a way that we can understand who Jesus is. But those who are in this story, they don't get to read John 1, 1 through 14. They don't see it. Of course, it hasn't happened yet. And so he's going to give us a way, give us the main identity of who this is. But he's never going to use the name Jesus. Go ahead, read it over and over again. He never says Jesus. He says the word over and over again, but he doesn't say Jesus. And this is a, a literary device that John will use is that he'll make you draw that conclusion. He's gonna tell you the word is this and the word is this. It is left to you, the reader, to say Jesus is that. That's who Jesus is. And of course, we understand that now as you read it, but John wants the reader to really wrestle with that decision. John likes to do this. He'll do it with himself. He'll refer to himself not by first person. He'll never say John. He'll say the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he'll refer to himself. And so it's interesting to see how John embeds himself in the story and how he makes the reader, you and me, draw our own conclusions about this. But notice a few words. The word beginning pops up twice here. This is the word RK. It connects to a lot of different things. This just means commencement or to the beginning of something. There's nothing really unique about the word. It's a common word, but it can mean three different things. It can be one, the beginning of something new, that this is the beginning of a new, a new event. That could be the, what John is implying. It could also be that he's talking about another time the word is used in scripture. Do you know that phrase in the beginning? Where have you seen that in the past? Genesis 1, right. And so this, it could be referring to that beginning. And that's definitely a possibility, especially when you look at John 1, 3, when he talks about in the beginning, he created all things. It says there, all things came into being through him. So he could be referring to creation. That's certainly true as well. But it could also be something else. Not only is that something new beginning, not only is he referring to perhaps creation, but he's going back even further than that, that the word was before time, before the beginning there was the word. He goes into eternity past. And so what he's trying to lay out here is maybe all three of these are true, but don't walk past the eternity past one. That the word was way back, way back before the beginning. It wasn't like the word was created just before Genesis 1. It goes even further back. And so the first century reader might look at this and think, wait a minute, he just attributed an eternal value to the word. 
This word has been around for a while. And so he gives us the identity of the word first and foremost. This is who he is. All He was in the beginning with God. And so this is an interesting phrase right there too, with God. You'll notice a word that pops up a couple times too, and that's the word, word. Greek is logos, it's the word. Again, a common phrase, but Aramaic, when they would write that concept of the word, they would use that as an, a way of attributing deity to that. The Greeks did the same thing. They looked at the word logos, and that it was the mind of essence of God, is thinking, the reason of the divine. And so that's how they would use the word word. The Hebrews would use that same word, and they would look at it, and it was something of divine nature as well, an expression of God. Because whenever a prophet spoke, or whenever God spoke to a prophet, you read it through the whole Old Testament, the word, word, came to Ezekiel. And so the word was attributed to God. And so you have these different concepts of God around that idea of word. And so the word was attributed or divinity was attributed to this word. But notice it says with God. Well, that's different too. At the first part we get was in the beginning was the word, the word when the word was with God. That's different. That means there's two of them. It's not just a mind or a thought is that there's actually two of them. And so we see the Trinitarian equation beginning to unfold in even brighter colors. You see it throughout the whole Old Testament, but you see it really starting to, to bloom here where it wasn't just in the beginning was the word, the word was with. Then when you follow it up, the word was God. It's impossible in the language, and it's impossible in the construction of this passage here to see that anything other than a claim of deity to the word. So if you're reading this in the first century, you're reading this, you're looking at it going, wait a minute, that just claimed the deity of the word. That's what John is laying out here, that this is not just a, a mental concept, a reason, or an expression, that the word was God. And so here you have the identity of the word. Notice he goes a little bit further in this, describing not just the identity of who the word is, but he's going to expound on it. It also explained to us that this word was, not only was he God, but notice his power. See what he did in chapter th in verse three? He created everything. And so we get this, now we have a real little bit confusing idea here because in Genesis, it talks about God created things. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Here it says the word did. And if it's getting a little blurry, if the Trinity is a little blurry to you, welcome aboard. It's blurry to everyone. And that's okay. You can't cut it up and make it all, this is the category here. No, it's, it's kind of blurry a little bit. But what we have here expressed by John is that the word is the creative agent of creation. God used the word to create all things. And because we know how the, the story unfolds, Jesus being the word, Jesus is the, the agent of creation. We see that in the rest of the, the text that Jesus is the one who did this. But here it is that he brings the power of creation with him. And so it's not, uh, he's, he's not just an expression of God. He, did, he was eternal and eternal pa eternity passed, but he is the agent of creation that God worked through Christ to create the universe, to create all that is. Notice his gifts. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He comes bearing gifts. He comes with life and he comes with light. And John will use these against each other or with each other a lot in the text. He'll use light and life and he'll use dark and, and darkness or death. He'll connect those two together. Darkness and death, light and life. He connects these. And the word comes into the picture and he, John uses this as a metaphor of light. That This is what he brings to a dark and dying world. You and I are familiar with light. We walk into a dark room and the first thing we start to do is this looking for something. 
okay? Uh, you walk into an old house, it's down here. If you walk into a newer house, it's up here. It's kind of an interesting thing. I guess they were shorter back then. <laughs> but they're, they're up here, and you go flumping for a light, and you hit a switch. And what do you expect to happen when you hit the switch? Okay, it's kind of an interesting concept because you hit that, and all of a sudden, pff, light. Remember uh, February of 2021? Snowmageddon? Remember when that happened? Okay, the rolling blackout stopped at my house. I was hoping they would keep rolling down the block. I mean, let's share the misery, right? But for three days, we had light off and on, and we had to live on candles. Uh, and then we came up here and slept. We almost slept here one night because we had no heater either. It was cold, and it was dark. There was no light. We're just so accustomed to hitting a switch, and all of a sudden, light happens. In John's day, they had to use a candle. They had to use a lamp. It wasn't very bright. They didn't talk about Kelvins. They didn't have spotlights in their faces. It was, when the sun went down, it got dark. I was in Africa, I guess it was 2008. And when it got dark, it was dark. I remember driving down the roads of Africa as Uganda with Dr. Craig and, and Mercy Trips, and there were no street lights. It was just a dark road with the little tiny lights on the front of everybody's bus. And I'm looking at it thinking, well, this is how it all ends. <laughs> right here, head-on collision with a barely lit up van coming right at us because they didn't have the lights. We're used to it. In John's day, that metaphor worked for the evil that was present. It was dark. They didn't have the light of what you and I experience as common with Christ because we live where we live and we live when we live. Then it was dark. Evil was abounding. It is still abounding today, but not like it was then. And so when he uses this as a gift, and in him was life, he is the possessor of life, connects to the idea of creation. He owns it. From him flows life, and from him comes light. It all is compressed into the word. And notice what happens. His impact, it happens in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. And that's another thing that we're very accustomed to. When you hit a light switch, what happens to the dark? If everything works right, okay. What happens to the dark? It leaves. There is no conflict. Light wins every single time. He confronts darkness. He is the one who steps into the created order that is in chaos, and he confronts things. We often have the bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? And I love that bracelet because nobody, everyone wants to think he always, he's always sweet and he's always kind. Now, when I read the Gospels, sometimes he's a meanie. Sometimes he is. Woe unto you, you hypocrites. That's not nice. He could have said sweethearts or woe unto you guys who were kind of faking it. He doesn't. Hits him right in the nose. Jesus is not sweet all of the time. He confronts darkness. Notice how the darkness responds, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness, in some of your translations, will say could not overcome it. They were overwhelmed by it. And that's how come when you flip on a light in a room, the light just leaves. It can't, it can't overcome that. The only way that darkness overcomes light is a couple things. One, don't turn it on. Okay, just don't hit the switch. Two, don't. I went over to a, a widow's house and she was having trouble with her lights and she thought I was a superhero because I went and she's, Bob, I can't get this lamp to work. And I said, You can't. Is it plugged in? Yes, it's plugged in. I love that response. It's always the first question anybody should ask. Is it plugged in? Yes, it's plugged in. Is the light bulb screwed in all the way? Well, it was yesterday. <laughs> so I reached up and I turned, I twisted the light bulb and I'm a genius. I saved the day. 
But you can turn off lights. You can ruin them if you just don't plug it in or just don't turn the switch on or leave the bulb unplugged. That's how you kill light. And you can do that with the Lord in your life. It's a striking thing to think about. We like to sing that song that says, nothing can stop the power of our God. And I beg to differ. Sure, you can. You can. Just don't turn the light on. Just refuse him. Just rebel against him. Just say no to him. And guess what you just did? You just stopped the power of your God. But if you plug it all in and you flip the switch, nothing can stop it. But you can hide it under a bushel. Anybody want to say hide it under a bushel? Yeah, there you go. But you can. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, but you can. And so here you have the light. It confronts the darkness. It wipes it out. It cannot, darkness cannot stand in front of it. The only way that light loses its power is when we fail to turn it on or deny the light or when we try to hide it. This is the agent of creation, the word who was there at the beginning, eternal, eternality in his being. It's who he is. He's God of very God. He brings gifts and he confronts darkness, but he also has a group. And I love the group that Jesus will bring with him. This is the first mention of the group. And this is John the Baptist. You'll notice this throughout the ministry of Christ is that he's always got a group around him. He rarely does anything by himself. He's got men around him, ladies around him, that he's going to model what it looks like to follow God. He's going to model servanthood. He's going to show them what love is. We get the first taste of it with John the Baptist and his story. And we see this man who's extremely different. He has a calling on his life, and he's got a willingness to stand firm against the tide of evil. Oftentimes, we look at the strength of a man, and we measure it by his fitness, we measure by his ability to earn money, if he can run fast, if he can catch, or if he can throw, or if he can scale a mountain. That's not the measure of a New Testament man. That's not the measure of a godly man. The measure of a godly man, the strength of this man is found in his willingness to remain committed to the cause in the face of all opposition. And John is committed. He does not wear the coolest clothes ever. Camel hair, leather belt, his diet, never, he doesn't have any lunch buddies. Nobody eats with this guy. Locusts and honey, good grief. That doesn't even sound at all appetizing. That sounds terrible. Have you looked at a grasshopper and said, mmm, just a little bit of honey on that would be good. Anybody ever say that? No one ever says that, okay? No one. If he was in the, in the if he knew what we know about salsa, maybe, maybe. But he doesn't know about that yet. But you can't put enough honey on a grasshopper for me to want to eat it. But that's what he ate all of the time. That's his diet. It is an interesting diet that never catches on. They I always want to use the Daniel diet, right? You've heard of the Daniel diet? No one ever says the John the Baptist diet. Nobody. No, we would be a lot skinnier, but nobody would be happy. But he stood in the face of opposition. Herod married his sister-in-law. And John says, you can't do that. A social concern, mind you. It's a social thing. You can't have your sister-in-law. John stood against that. He's arrested. And because he would not change his tune because he stood for the cause and he stood for righteousness. He was martyred, killed. This is part of the posse that Jesus ran with, the group that was around him, men who were more concerned about their righteousness with God than their acceptance amongst men. The word was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. He was the agent of creation. He brought light and life, was preceded by John. And then the, the greatest of questions is, how was he received? Notice verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. The world is a general word. It's not talking about the globe. He's talking about people. They did not receive him. 
He goes a little bit closer. He says, he came into his own in verse 11, and those who were of his own did not receive him. And so he goes from the world, and it gets down to his group, his tribe, dare I say his family. They did not receive him. They rejected him. You would think with all the things that he brought, light and life and creative power and all these things that Jesus brought, people would be flocking to receive him. They did not. In fact, it wasn't until after the resurrection you get Pentecost. 120 people are up in that upper room waiting to see and hear what's next. 120, that's it? 120, that's it. That's not a big movement. Not many received him. Most rejected him. But notice what happens to those who receive him. It says it there in verse 12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice that. Those who receive him become children of God. Implied in that is they weren't previously. In order to become a child of God, guess what you have to do? You have to believe in him. If you don't, you're not. If you believe, you are. Sometimes you'll hear that phrase, we're all children of God. Mm, I hate to be a meanie, but that's not true. We're not all children of God. The only people who are children of God are the people who believe in Christ. And anybody can. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you are not a child of the God yet. You have to come to faith. It sounds mean. I don't like saying it, but it's true. But the entrance is simple. You just believe. You receive him. And those who receive him, he gives you the right to become children of God. He is the one that brings you into the fold. He is the one that brings you into the family. You reject him, you are not a child of the king. And so notice all the things that happen for us there. We get his identity in chapter or verse one and two, his power in verse three. We get his gifts in verse four. He brings light and life. We get his impact. And what he does is that he confronts evil. He turns on the switch and reveals what's hiding in the dark. He has a group. Jesus nearly always works with a group, whether it's just 12 or more, he's always working with the group. And then his reception is questionable. That is the choice of the reader. That is the choice of the people who are going to experience this for the first time. They have to decide, how are they going to respond to Christ? But notice verse 14, it's kind of a summary statement. I think there's an unfortunate page break or paragraph break here. It feels like it should be the paragraph break at verse 15. They put it at 14. So if you can just associate 14 with verse 13, this is a summary statement by John. Because he uses the past tense. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Some of your translations will say, and we beheld his glory. We saw it up close and personal. I was at a restaurant last night celebrating a birthday, and I was noticing the people all around me. And we know how to behold things. You have one of these? Has anything ever been more glued to anybody's hand than this? And when you drop it, does everybody panic? <gasps> it's like you dropped an infant or something, right? You just, what? Is it okay? Is it okay? We develop cases and everything around it. But I was watching this last night, and you've seen it too. How many people are just staring at this thing? They're just staring at it. If they're doing this, you know what they're doing, right? 
nothing. They're just doing this. I know Bank of America wants us to think we're all banking on our phones. We're not. We're just losing our minds, okay? So we're just doing this. And so last time, I'm just watching all these folks, and they're just staring at their phone. You know what they're doing? They're beholden to this. It's glued to their hand. I have a little pop-up. It's stuck to my hand. I can't even drop it right, okay? And so here they are. They're beholden to their phone. We know how to behold something. And what John is saying is we beheld his glory. We saw it, fixed upon it. We beheld him right there. We treasured it. Our hope as we go through this series through the gospel of John is that you will behold that glory. Look at it from a different perspective. Read the story again and think what you would do if you knew what they knew, which was nothing. If you can strip from your mind that this was Jesus walking into the wedding and he did what he did. If you can strip from your mind the woman at the well, you know who Jesus is. She doesn't. Put yourself in her shoes. She just sees a guy down there and he wants something from me. Nicodemus thinks he's sitting down with the intellectual equal. There is no equal there. He's way over his head. He has no idea who he's talking to. Put yourself in those shoes. Behold him differently. Behold what he's doing in the lives of these dear souls because he is going to change everything about them and they don't know it yet. They won't know it till after the resurrection and what they saw. Then it begins processing that. So when you read Luke chapter 24, he'll say that after the road to the Demaeus, he'll say that he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures and they went, oh, oh my. Now, that's happened to you, I'm sure to where you get past the event, past the stress, and you look back and you go, oh my, God did that. I didn't even see it coming. God did that. And you'll have that throughout this testament. And so how does this apply to us? Well, I want you to do a few things. First of all, remember who he is. Remember who you're dealing with. You have to answer that question as you read it. John is going to put it in front of you. We know because we know the rest of the story. We've read the book of John, but they didn't. But remember who he is. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we think we're talking to the baby in the manger. You're not. Sometimes we're talking about somebody who might not know everything. He knows all he possibly, he knows all that could possibly be known. Trust him. Remember who he is. Remember also this, look for him. Look for him. Because sometimes we get stressed and hurried and we stop recognizing that he's there. We think oh, it's Sunday, maybe in the quiet time in the morning, but not here. No, he's there. They missed him. They weren't looking for him. We know who he was. We should have our eyes out for him, looking for how he's working around us. He places you in the environment you're in. You are a disciple of Christ, cleverly disguised as a banker, as a teacher, as an oil field hand, as a leader in the community, wherever you might be, you are a disciple of Christ. He's placed you there to do something special. Look for him. Look for him. And you have to train your eyes to do that. And the only way to train your eyes that I can think of is every morning you need to start with a quiet time with the Lord. Read your Bible. You need a place to start? Why not John? We're going to be going through that in the next several weeks. Just start reading John. Well, I've read that book. Read it again. Okay, they're not coming out with new books. It's just 66. That's all there is. You're going to have to start reading these things over again. But it, some new things pop out. They just do. And hopefully if you read it with this mindset that they didn't know, some things will pop out and you might be able to relate some of these folks. And so look for him. Spend time in the morning. Lord, help me see you where you're working today. 
and recognize you. And then when you do recognize him, you see him doing, working, choose wisely. All these people in the stories have to make a choice. And so do you. Now there's the ultimate choice, and that is to receive him, to accept him as your savior, to believe in him. That's the first choice, and that's important. You need to make that decision. But you have to choose him every day. Lord Jesus, I'm going to follow you today because I'm really mad and I want to just tear into somebody today. And that's probably, they probably need to get a little bit of that, but I need to be, I need to be kind. Lord, help me to be gracious and kind. I need to follow Christ today. I need to make that decision. You make that decision every day. Make that choice. So when we think about this book, I want you to see Jesus from a new perspective. He meets you right where you are, and you can encounter him wherever you might be. And if you can, you'll remember who he is, you'll look for him, and then you'll choose wisely. You'll follow him and whatever he's calling you to do, and he'll bless you as you do that, because then you'll begin to see him more often. You'll see his hand in more places. And if you train your eyes, you will see him. Several years ago, I I read a book, um, it was written by John Stott, it's called The Cross of Christ, and he says, it's a very long, very long book, and uh, he says something in the book that was fascinating, and that was that if you look for it, you will see the cross everywhere, everywhere. And so I challenge you this week, look for the cross You'll, you can't drive down Grandview without seeing the cross. Now, you might cross yourself as you're driving down Grandview. That's a different thing. But if you drive down Grandview, you will see the cross. It's everywhere. Look through window panes. You'll see a cross. And if you'll just train your eyes. I remember reading that book, and that next week, I said, I'm going to look for the cross. And it's everywhere. It can't be hidden. And it's kind of a fun thing because when you drive down Grandview, I promise you, just look at the things, you know, the, these like long ropes that are hanging down. You know, those are the power lines. Look at those. You're going to see a cross everywhere because when you train your eyes to look for him, you'll find him. And when you find him, choose wisely. Follow him. Remember who you're talking to. He has come to bring us light and life.